My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Lutheran. And uh, I'm gonna be opening up the scriptures with you guys this morning. We're gonna be examining this teaching of Jesus that uh, is quite challenging. And so I, I've already preached this sermon twice this weekend and it hasn't gotten any easier to approach it. So it's kind of with fear and trembling that I come before you with this passage of scripture, especially in the tumultuous time that our country is in and just how uh, combative uh, and polemic our culture is right now. Uh, this teaching is it's such a radical reversal from everything that we would expect, from everything that, that our intuition and our culture tells us. But it, before we get there, uh, we're in this sermon series called Unmasked. And this isn't us trying to be cute, talking about the masks that we all have to wear out in public now, because uh, we're not talking about that. Because when I'm out at the grocery store or at the hardware store, at the auto parts store, whatever it might be, uh, if I see somebody that I know with the mask on, I can still recognize them. Right? I can see their eyes, I know who they are. This has happened to me uh, the last several uh, months. Over the last several months that I would see somebody that I know at the grocery store and we would do some small talk because we can still recognize each other um, just with our eyes, even though we can't see our nose and our mouth. But that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about masks. We're talking about full face masks that really disguise who we are. And our central verse for this series is from John 13, and it says this. Uh, this is Jesus teaching his disciples, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus says very clearly that the world will know that you are my disciples, that you are my people by your love. And oftentimes, people don't see love when they think about Christians. In fact, when... Uh, Pastor Ben was constructing and building this sermon series uh, a few months ago. We, he sent out a text to some staff members and some volunteers. And he said, if I were to ask you, uh, the world will know you are Christians by your blank. What would the world say about Christians? What do they know about Christians? And there were lots of responses to that. Uh, you'll know that you're my disciples by the t-shirts that you wear, by the bumper stickers that you have, by your politics that you have, by your culture or how you dress. Uh, we, had, we talked about, you know, you, you'll, they'll know that you're my disciples uh, by the places and the friends that you have, the people that you spend time with. There were all these things, and nobody, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think anybody said love. No one actually finished that sentence the way that Jesus has it here, because frankly, our churches are not known for our love. We're known to be lots of things, pushy, arrogant, bigoted, uh, unwelcoming, political, but oftentimes we're not known for our love. And so this is kind of our main passage that we're working through today. And uh, are the, the main passage for the sermon series. Now, the, the scripture that we're looking at today is a teaching from Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount. And he has a few hundred people gathered, maybe even more than that, gathered with him. But we know there's a lot of people in this crowd that he's preaching to, he's teaching to. And this is how he begins his uh, teaching. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does this several times. He te- it's a long teaching, and he kind of has this rhythm where he'll introduce a law or he'll introduce a tradition, and then he'll flip it on its head. And so this is him introducing a particular tradition. So when he says, you've heard that it said, the, the group that he's preaching and teaching to, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, everyone would have heard that. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself is actually one of the commands from the Old Testament. And so there was this tradition from rabbis and teachers that added on to it uh, the inverse. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so when Jesus said this out to the crowd, everyone would have nodded. Everyone would have known this particular teaching. They would have known uh, this particular tradition that he quotes. And his group, this congregation that he had uh, gathered around him at this time for this teaching, Uh, they knew what it meant to have enemies. You see, at this time, the Israelites, the Jews, they were under Roman rule. And the Roman Empire had set up a kind of puppet king named Herod, which you might recognize that name, uh, to rule Jerusalem and to rule the Jewish people. And Herod was not a good guy. He wasn't even really a Jew. He was just kind of a Jew by name. Uh, He definitely wasn't practicing, definitely didn't respect the traditions. He was immoral. He was heavy-handed. He was vile. He was violent. um, He was ambitious. And people really didn't like Herod. The Jews, many Jews really didn't like Herod. And many Jews really didn't like the Roman Empire. And so out of this, there sprung several groups that we would call political parties, right? We would, we would call them parties that kind of aligned themselves on this spectrum uh, from more conservative to more liberal and back and forth. So it may sound kind of familiar. So you had the Sadducees that kind of, uh, they, they believed that the best way to gain power was to kind of get in bed with the people who had power. So the Sadducees were scribes, they were scholars of the scriptures, and they were kind of the upper crust, and they sided with Herod and the Romans. And they didn't necessarily like the Romans or Herod, but they said the best way to get things done is to, is to go with them, go where the power is. Then you had the Pharisees who really didn't like the Sadducees. In fact, they were, they were enemies in this context, and the Pharisees were more populist. They were still scholars, kind of the upper crust, but they were more populist. So they, they believed that the way to overthrow Roman rule wasn't necessarily by violence or, um, or even by politics, but by becoming as pious and religious as, the, as you could. And when the people of Israel took seriously the laws of God, then God would come and rescue them from the Romans. Then you would have groups like the Zealots that believed the only way to overthrow Roman rule was by violence, by the sword. And so they staged several rebellions to overthrow Herod and overthrow the Roman rule during the time of Jesus. And so there is another group called the Essenes, but there, you understand that there are these, there's a spectrum of political views. And much like today, that should sound fairly familiar because in this room, I don't know, there are six of us or so in this room right now. And maybe there are maybe 200 of you watching at you know, in your homes, you're watching this service. If I were to ask the six people in this room what their political opinions about the environment, the political environment of our country today, all of us would have different views. Some of us might be more similar to each other than others, but they would all be nuanced. There would be six opinions about 
the political environment today. Same thing if uh, you at home, if I said uh, in the Facebook comments in this video, tell us your political opinion about the environment of the United States today, which I am not doing that. Please do not do that. But if I were to do that, there would probably be 200 nuanced and varied opinions about the political environment today. And it's exactly the same way with Jesus. As he looked out and he began to teach, everyone would have had an opinion. Everyone would have had a little bit of a different opinion, but they would have found themselves being sympathetic or maybe even buying into one of these groups or one of these political parties. So when Jesus said, um, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, in this, in this group's minds, they had the good guys in their head and they had the bad guys in their head, right? They knew who their enemies were and they knew who their allies were. And then Jesus continues this teaching. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. Notice here how Jesus doesn't say, well, the right opinion is X, Y, and Z. He doesn't say the Pharisees are right and the Sadducees are wrong. He doesn't say the Zealots are right and the Pharisees are wrong. He doesn't say that. He looks out at this group of people with these varied political opinions in a very heightened uh, and tense political environment, and he tells this group of people that every one of them should love their enemies. Love your enemies. So the Pharisees are called to love the Sadducees. The Sadducees are called to love to zealots. The zealots are called to love the He says, love your enemies. He doesn't weigh in on the, the tension. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This seems strange. And it seems strange to us today as well because that would be if Jesus came here today and he was preaching this sermon or he was giving this teaching, it would be the same kind of thing. If you are a Republican conservative, he commands that you love Democrats, that you love the Democrats, you love the liberals, you love the people who are opposed to everything that you support. Same thing the other way. He would tell the Democrats and the liberals, you are to love the Republicans, love the conservative, love your enemy, love those who are opposed to the very things you stand for. And if you are attacked by them, he says, pray for them. Not fight back, but pray for them. This, is, this seems kind of silly, right? This isn't a very good way to get things done. It doesn't seem. And Jesus continues on. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And you guys may remember tax collectors were very, they were hated by many of the Jews during this time. Uh, they were loyal to the Romans and they actually collected taxes from fellow Jews uh, to give to the Romans and they skimmed some off tops. So they were liars, they were cheaters. For the Jewish people, they weren't allowed to do business with tax collectors. That's how much they were hated. They were looked at worse than pagans, worse than Gentiles. You were not allowed to interact 
or to associate with tax collectors. And Jesus says, if you only love those people who are, who are like you, if you only love those people who treat you well, even the tax collectors do that. And he continues on. He says, and if you greet, if you welcome into your heart and into your circle, into your social circles, into your home, only your brothers and sisters, only those who are like you, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. And Gentiles are non-Jews. They're kind of the pagans for the Jews. He says, if you only welcome, if you only greet, if you only welcome into your hearts and lives those people who are like you, who look like you, believe like you, aren't you just exactly like the Gentiles? And that's why this teaching is such a radical reversal. Jesus is recognizing here that we as humans, we have this tendency, uh, and it's, it's called being tribal. We, we tend to be tribal, and we buy into this kind of tribalism where we have our group that looks like us and thinks like us and uh, talks like us and dresses like us. And if somebody is not part of this group, they are different from us and therefore inherently bad. And in order to be part of our group, you have to look and dress and talk and act and believe like us. And if you don't do this, then you are the outsider and you are therefore the enemy. And there can be varying degrees of how hostile you are toward your enemies, but there's still this in-group and this out-group. This is called tribalism. And in our world right now, and, and, and part of this tribalistic tendency, the, the bubbling up of it is racism, right? That there's an in-group based on skin color or culture or how people dress or talk, right? And right now in our country, there's this upheaval going on where the race relations and racism is part of the cultural conversation. And one of the good things that has happened out of these protests and all this uh, awareness that's been going on is that it's made people like that look and sound and dress like me, a white middle class person. It, it's made those of us who are white middle class realize that maybe there are some prejudices that we didn't realize were there. And maybe there are some tribalism that we had that we didn't even realize was there. Because what we tend to do is we tend to, nav we tend to uh, uh, be drawn toward people who are like us. I'm going to give you uh, an example like this. And again, I've, this is the third time that I've preached this sermon. I want to tell you a story that's embarrassing for me to tell. It's already out in the airwaves, so I know I have to tell it. Um, but this is the third time I'm going to tell this story to the camera, to you guys. And it is not easier this time. Like, I still don't want to tell you this story, um, but I want to tell it because I think it it's going to open up your eyes to see maybe where you're experiencing some of this. Um, so I grew up in a progressive community. It was very liberal. And my education, I went to public school and it was very progressive and very liberal. Um, I grew up in a diverse neighborhood um, and in diverse schools. By the time I graduated high school, our high school was over 50% minority. And uh, so I was always around. I had many friends who were different than me who were different nationalities. Some of them uh, were several generations here in the United States. Some were immigrants, first-generation immigrants. I had friends of all different skin tones, all sorts of stuff. And, and I never would have thought that I had racist tendencies. I never would have thought that. In fact, I was very much against that. 
I was very much against the, the idea of judging someone based on how they looked, the color of their skin, or even their culture. And about four years ago, um, I realized that in my studies in college and as a pastor, uh, that I hadn't, there wasn't a lot of diversity in my reading. And so what I decided to do, I took about six months or a little bit more maybe to only read African-American theologians, biblical scholars, and philosophers. So I devoted myself, I was only going to read African-American scholars for this, uh, for about six months or so. And I thought at the time, that, that's a pretty righteous thing to do. I recognized there wasn't a whole lot of diversity in my reading, and so I wanted to expand my horizons and get diverse voices in there. Uh, that's, I felt like that was a righteous thing to do at the time. And so I devoted myself to this, and as I was reading these scholars, I was amazed by these books that I was reading. There was, the scholarship was so great. Um, I really, it was very fruitful. It was a really invigorating and fruitful time in my life. And uh, as I was reading and listening, there was one scholar in particular that I just could not take seriously. He, I mean, he had a PhD from a reputable university. He was well-read. He, he, was, uh, he was very academic in his approach. And I just couldn't take him seriously. And it was because when I listened to his lectures, uh, when I listened to him teach, uh, he, he was African-American and he spoke the African-American vernacular English. He spoke the African-American dialect. And in my mind, I said to myself, how can I take this scholar seriously in his scholarship if he doesn't even speak proper English? That's what I thought. Now, some of you may have heard that and you're sympathetic toward it, right? You're like, yeah, of course, right? If someone doesn't speak proper English, then, you know, can we really take them seriously? Some of you got pricklies, right? Your stomach kind of knotted up and, you know, you got a little uncomfortable, and after I had that thought, I can't remember how soon it was, a day or two later, I thought, oh my God, that's racist. Like, that was a racist thought that I had. And, and I never would have thought I was a racist. I never would have in a, in a million years thought that I would have racist tendencies, but I realized that I had this this tribal idea that there was a proper way to speak English which, by the way, there isn't. Uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary varies greatly from the Oxford English Dictionary. And just because you're taught a particular kind of English in, the, in school and in academics doesn't mean that people speak that way all the time. Language is fluid. There's no such thing as proper any one language because language is always changing. There's always these dialects and accents that come up. There's no, really no such thing as proper English. That was simply me I had my little tribe, and my tribe was, was people, white middle-class people from the academy, from scholarship. And because this scholar didn't sound like my tribe, particularly because he was African-American and he spoke like an African-American, I couldn't take him seriously. That was me having my little tribe and painting somebody else, not necessarily as the enemy, right? Because I wasn't hostile toward him, but he was different and I was, wouldn't take him seriously. And so I actually, I had to begin the process of uprooting that kind of latent racism in my life, that kind of latent prejudice in my life. And what I think we're realizing right now is that these, 
a lot of us who are white middle class are experiencing these emotions of shame, of embarrassment, because we're realizing that we have these kind of latent prejudices. And this isn't just with race, although that is a, a, a huge example of how this happens, especially in the church. It really happens um, in lots of ways in the church because we have our own little culture here as uh, predominantly white American Christians. We have our own little bubble that we live in, and if someone doesn't look or act or dress or behave the way that we think they should, we're a little bit standoffish. So as Christians, oftentimes we wear the mask of being unwelcoming. We wear the mask of being a little bit standoffish if you don't look and dress and talk like I do. In fact, just this week I had a long conversation with a now friend who, um, he has tattoos all over his face and his ears. Uh, He had a big mohawk, uh, or sorry, he had piercings all over his face and ears. He had tattoos all over his body, tattoos on his head, on his arms, this giant mohawk. And as we were talking, he, there were at least three times that I can remember in our conversation where he would talk about going to a church, being part of a church, and enjoying it. He liked being there. He liked going and worshiping there. But either the pastor or a leader or somebody in the congregation would tell him, hey, you really need to not have the piercings if you're going to go here. Or you really should be wearing long sleeves so you can cover up your tattoos for you to go here. Or, hey, the mohawk is a little bit much. You know, it's gelled up. Mohawk's a little bit much. You really should not do that if you're going to be part of our congregation. And I'm wondering how many times here at New Life maybe that's happened. Maybe not so obvious. But somebody has come in and they've had a, a different skin tone or they've had a different culture or they've dressed differently or talked differently and they come here and it feels kind of standoffish. It feels unwelcoming because we have our own little group, our own little tribe, and if you look or sound or speak differently then you're labeled as different. We're a little unwelcoming. I'm guessing that's happened at least once here at New Life, if not more. So we wear this mask of unwelcoming and really it comes down to having this in-group and saying, we're the good guys and if you look or dress or talk or uh, have parties different than we do, you're different and therefore you're bad. We do it with politics, we do it with culture, we do it with race, we do it with clothing, we do it with our church create these little tribes. As I was thinking through this passage and studying and praying over it, um, this verse kept coming into my head from 1 Corinthians 13 because we're told, Jesus tells us that we're not supposed to create these little tribes, but actually we're supposed to love our enemies, love those who are different than us, love those who are opposed to us. And I, this verse kept coming up and it's from 1 Corinthians 13 and it's Paul defining what love is. Oftentimes we hear this passage at weddings, but it doesn't have anything to do with marriage. It actually just has to do with, with uh, love between uh, people and specifically within the church. And this is what, uh, how Paul defines love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, because of this uh, kind of tumultuous time, time, this kind of political tension we're in right now, I've seen some of y'all's Facebook posts, and I know that you have not loved your enemies. I've seen it. I've witnessed you not doing this to people that you disagree with. I have a hard time with this passage in the context of loving people who disagree with me. Because let's just think through the implications of this. If we are to love our enemy, love the person that believes differently than us, that looks differently than us, that has different values than us, we're supposed to be patient with them. We're supposed to be kind to them. We're supposed to not be envious when they gain notoriety or power. We're not to be boastful or arrogant or rude about our differences. And here's the kicker. Love does not insist on its own way. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, the most loving thing to do to somebody is to correct them when they're wrong. There can be correction, but we are not to insist on our own way. To love our enemy is to be kind and patient to them, to not be envious or irritable or resentful, and to not insist on our own way. But to rejoice in the truth, to not rejoice in wrongdoing, to bear with them, to believe in them, to hope in them, and to endure them, and to endure with them. To me, this, this definition of love, and to be told to love my enemies, it just sounds stupid to me. And I, don't, I don't mean that tritely. Like this week, I have been challenged by this passage, by this teaching of Jesus. I can't tell you how many times I've taught this as a pastor. I can't tell you how many times I've studied this verse over the last 10 years as I've, as I've done my studies and begun my professional career as a pastor and, and studying the scriptures. I cannot tell you how many times I've thought about this passage in Matthew, the teaching of Jesus, but then to think about it in the context of this definition of love, it just literally does not make sense to me. It's taken me all week <laughs> to, even, to even process what this means. That means that if you're a conservative Republican, you are to be patient with Democrats and liberals. You are to be kind to Democrats and liberals. You are to not be envious when they win or gain power. You are to not be boastful or arrogant or rude when you get power. You are not to insist on your way, your belief on them. It is not irritable or resentful to them. Same thing, it's flipped around. If you're a democratic, if you're a liberal, you are to be patient with conservative Republicans. You are to be kind to conservative Republicans. You are to not be envious when they get power. You are not to be boastful or arrogant or rude. You are not to insist on your own way. If you're a white middle class and you see somebody who dresses differently than you, who maybe wears their pants low, who has dark skin, who listens to loud music, you are to be kind to them, be patient with them, and to not insist on your own way. This just simply sounds idiotic to me. 
It is against everything I, this is, every, all of my intuition tells me not to be like this. But this is the command. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, who are against you. Be kind to them. Be patient with them. Do not be envious of them. Do not be boastful or arrogant or rude. Do not insist on your own way. Do not be irritable or resentful. Do not rejoice in wrongdoing. Rejoice in the truth. But again, it doesn't say demand the truth. It says rejoice in the truth. Bear with them. Believe in them. Hope in them. And endure with them. You know, sometimes uh, there's a lot of legwork that needs to happen as a pastor when you're teaching scripture, but this isn't one of those times. Straight from Jesus' mouth, love your enemies. Straight from Paul's inspired mouth, love is patient and kind, etc., etc. We mask ourselves with arrogance, with unwelcoming, with politics with tribalism. But Jesus loved us. God loved us. He was humiliated again and again and again by the Israelites. Jesus, when he faced the Sanhedrin, and there were all these false witnesses saying lies about what he has done, he did not demand truth. He did not insist on truth. But he was willing to be humiliated and killed in order to love and to save them. I wish I could be um, inspirational at this point. I wish that I could have some kind of call to action that would make me feel better, make you feel better. Um, But I don't. I don't today. So I'll tell you what I'm doing during this time of tension, of upheaval, of this very aggressive, uh, kind of combative uh, environment that we're in right now, I'm shutting up and I'm listening to people who believe differently, who look different, who have different backgrounds, who dress differently, who talk differently than me. I'm listening to them. So that's my encouragement to you. Just shut up. Shut up and listen. Listen to those who are different than you. Listen to those who are against what you're for. That's the first step to loving them, is to actually listening to what they have to say. Listen to their stories, listen to their frustrations. So, just shut up and listen. It's the elephant here.